Welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am very fortunate to have the opportunity to, uh, through Zoom, be speaking with Lynn Hilleman. I did not ask you if that's how you say your last name. Am I correct? It's actually Heilman. Heilman. Oh, I was going to ask you before we started, but now everybody gets to hear me be wrong. Um, this is exciting for me. I'm going to let you tell her. I'm going to let her tell you, rather, um, all the different things she does. But the reason, the biggest reason I was interested uh, in speaking with her is because my listeners know I'm really interested in practice organization. And Lynn is doing a lot of work um, on flow state and ways to improve your practice by making sure you're getting the maximum amount of your um, maximum efficiency and effectiveness out of your practice, I assume. And so it'll be really cool to kind of talk about this. But before we get into that, A, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And B, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. So most of my audience is a, a brass audience. And so I think uh, it'll be good just to get a feeling for uh, who you are and what you do. Well, thanks again so much for having me. Um, I am a bassoonist um, in my performance life. And so, you know, I'm used to kind of being back in the second row next to you guys. Yeah, so, not too far away. Yeah, not too far away. Um, I'm a orchestral performer. I have a large new music focus um, and chamber music focus. And I am also a professor of bassoon at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I teach bassoon, I teach music theory, and I also teach a course called Mental Musicianship, which is basically a you know college course that trains people in the mental skills required to not only maximize our practice, but really manage our thoughts and emotions around everything we do as musicians, which is mm -hmm. really, you know, a fundamental skill, maybe the most important skill that we're not often explicitly taught in music school, where it's kind of hinted at and a lot of us just figure it out and our teachers tell us what they've figured out. But um, we're rarely given a, a real systematic process. And so I kind of see that work as really being the core of everything that I do as a performer. I've always been aware that my own performing challenges were mostly on the level of mental challenges, the mm. mental discipline, the mental management. You know, I was always willing to put the work and the time in to get better, to learn what I needed to learn to do, what needed to be done. But then I always kind of felt like I was playing at a high level, but it was never what I knew I could do. And I knew that there was something in the way I was thinking or something in the way I was approaching it that was creating that block what yeah. I perceived was a block. And I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, and so, you know, even in college, I was thinking about this kind of stuff. And as uh, 
a teacher of people who have all different kinds of goals from being orchestral performers or solo performers or teachers or music therapists, you know, I get to see people with a really wide range of training and to see that they, they all kind of have the same fundamental thought patterns that I have, that I had, especially when I was their age, um, really brings it home to me that whether we're working on our skills as performers or thinking in terms of music theory, our skills as listeners and just processors of music, um, or our skills as teachers, a lot of it comes down to the same core issues. And as I have taught this particular method more and more, I've seen that it all points to being able to generate flow states, which I always kind of, you know, I'd heard about them, but they seem like they, they are these kind of mysterious, quasi-mystical <laughs> experiences where people described like, oh, being the pen was moving my hand and I wasn't in yeah. control of it and all of that. And my response was like, well, that's nice for you. Yeah. I think flow state is one of those things that everybody has kind of an idea of. This is one reason I'm really excited. Cause I think although words are insufficient to describe the feeling, it certainly is helpful to get people on the right path of what it actually can be. Um, it sounds like for you, very similar to me, a lot of this work was discovered, um, as through your own journey as a performer and how can I do this better and better? And then you probably have come to, okay, now that I kind of understand this, how can I explain it to somebody else in a way that's meaningful for them? And then they can also take it and run with it. And then they can have it in a way that uh, they can even develop it into their own thing from there. Exactly. Exactly. It's going to be a very personal path and plan for everybody, but there are certain there, there are certain aspects of flow that are universal. Um, it's just that how you access it and what your flow triggers are, because there are certain conditions that will actually trigger the state. Your flow triggers are going to be slightly different from mine, which are going to be slightly different from someone else's. Um, and so part of the process is understanding what flow is, how you get into it, what the most important things to do are. Um, and then from there, it's just a ton of self-experimentation. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about your education and sort of the road up until then, but I just think we should save that for later. So I don't, we, we can just roll on this. Um, why don't we just dig into flow state? Why don't we see, um, like, what is your definition of flow state? Um, how, like you said, triggers for getting into it. How do we know that we're into it? How do we know what it's not? If you kind of just want to go through your description, I'm sure you've done this many, many times. So um, whatever your uh, most important things about flow state, so we can all kind of learn and then we'll start to pick it apart. Absolutely. So, you know, the most basic definition of flow is that it's an optimal state of consciousness where we feel and perform our best. And so that's really a wide open kind of, of definition. Um, but it's characterized by eight basic things. Um, and the first is a sense of effortlessness and ease, complete concentration on the task at hand clarity of goals, so really knowing exactly what you're doing and exactly what you're trying to do, having immediate feedback about how you're doing, 
um, it's often characterized by a, a sense of the transformation of time. And this is one of the most famous hallmarks of flow, that sense that either, you know, an hour passes by and you are so engrossed in what you were doing that you didn't realize so much time had passed, or yeah. that things can seem to stretch out and expand and like there's an expansiveness to time. Things are moving more slowly than you mm. would expect. There's a balance of challenge and skill. So as musicians, you know, we know that one of the most important things when we practice is to make sure that we're not either making it too easy or too hard. There's kind of a Goldilocks zone where challenge and skill are perfectly balanced to trigger this state. Um, there's a merging of action and awareness. So what that basically means is that just the doing of something becomes our awareness of it. And this leads to this loss of self-consciousness. Um, we tend to lose that rumination instinct, that the inner critic of just kind of chewing over things all the time while we're playing. Yeah, right. Um, and there's a feeling of control over the task that comes. So that's kind of the characteristics of, of what the state can be like. But there's there's two important things to, to know about it that I think are, are often misunderstood. And they were certainly misunderstood by me before I started really researching what flow was and working with it in particular. And one is that flow is ubiquitous, right? It's not a rarefied state that is you know only reserved for certain people flow we are built we're basically programmed to to be in it and in fact most of us find ourselves in flow states just spontaneously during the day about five percent of the time mm. so it will arise in anyone anywhere as long as certain preconditions are met and this is one of the, the the things that was so kind of revolutionary about the discovery of flow, um, which goes back to the Hungarian-American psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And he studied people all over the world in all kinds of professions, right? He started off with high achievers and artists, but then he quickly moved into, you know, he interviewed factory workers, um, he interviewed dentists, he interviewed everybody he could find to say, what does it feel like when you are at your best? And they all kind of described these same characteristics of the state. And they also just felt like everything was kind of flowing. And that's why he called it flow, because yeah. it feels yeah, interesting. flowy. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty apt, I suppose. Not very creative, but very apt. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's it, you know, we think of it, oh, flow is this mysterious thing. But it's like, no, flow is just how it feels. That's just how everyone yeah. described it. That's awesome. So it, it occurs everywhere, right? There's nothing actually special about it. Um, and the other thing that we often don't realize is that it's a continuum. So there are what can be described as macro flow states, which are those big, the ones you hear about, like, I just was totally out of my body, right? And that's the one where often we're like, well, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not what my experience <laughs> is like. Yeah. Um, but then there's also states that they call microflow, which are just smaller, a smaller scale instance of it. And we'll talk about, you know, the difference in what's going on in macroflow and, and microflow. But, you know, basically you can get a little bit of it 
And then you can also have these experiences where you get a lot of it. But a little bit of it can be a really powerful thing. So we don't have to have these full-blown big flow experiences to really be in flow. And I think a lot of, of us, because of that, we don't know that, we don't recognize when we're in flow. And so we mm -hmm. tend to not understand that we have a little bit of it, we can get more of it. And it is yeah. highly trainable. I was going to ask, is this a situation where almost even asking the question, am I in flow state? Is that like a good way to get started figuring it out? Just being aware that there is this possible state of being. Absolutely. You know, I think being aware that there is a flow state and there's certain things that are going to characterize it. Um, that you can, because often we don't, like you said, we don't know that it's there. We don't know that we're in it. And so being aware of that can be really beneficial. But along with that, the thing that can be really helpful with flow is also knowing that flow is not a steady state. It's actually a cycle of four different distinct stages and they all feel really different. And we can recognize where we are in the cycle and that can teach us what we should do in that part of the state to get us to the next part of the cycle. Interesting. Okay. What are those? I'm assuming that's what you're going to say next, but sure, what, yeah. would those four, what would those four things be? So the first part of the flow state is the one that, that, or the flow cycle is one that we are all very, very familiar with. I would say we are experts in this part of the flow cycle and that's called the struggle phase. <laughs> <laughs> Now, most of us, um, many of us kind of live our life in the struggle phase. So the struggle phase is basically where you're grappling with the problem, you're think the thinking, conscious thinking part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that handles planning, strategy, all of that um, analysis, that is really very active. And so we're grappling with the problem. We're taking in a lot of information. We're trying to figure something out and we're thinking about it. Now, eventually we're going to feel a little bit frustrated because we're kind of getting overloaded with information. You can think about when you're trying to learn a passage and you're doing it, you're just not quite getting it. You're trying to figure it out and you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so our reaction sometimes to that feeling of frustration, of being a little bit overwhelmed, is that this is a bad thing. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I don't want to feel this way. So I'm either just going to keep banging my head against the wall or I'm going to stop and go do something else. Um, but really what that means is that you're in the struggle phase of the flow cycle and you're just experiencing some stress hormones, norepinephrine, which is basically adrenaline, um, a little bit of cortisol are two main stress hormones that we feel even when we get nervous to go on stage and that you're actually on the cusp of flow when you feel that frustration. All it means is that our brain is a little bit overloaded with the amount of information it can process. And so we want to move into the next phase of the flow cycle after we are struggling, which is called release. And the release phase is 
basically a transitional phase. It's where we start focusing on the things that trigger flow. And we'll talk about those in a bit. And those stress hormones, the cortisol, the norepinephrine, they start to wash out of your system. So you might be familiar with this from just the kind of performance cycle. You know, if you're in an orchestra, you sit down, you might play the concerto, you might have a little bit of nerves because something more stressful is coming up later in the program. Sure. Yeah. Right? Or the overture, right? Um, right. And you, you play and then after a while, everything just kind of calms down. So you're kind of in that struggle. The stress hormones will recede and then you'll pass into the actual flow state. And the flow state is characterized by some different neurochemicals. So we get start to get dopamine hmm. and we start to get anandamides, which are, um, they're actually this, the same chemical in our brain that THC would produce. Nice. If you took a drug. <laughs> uh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's a highly rewarding kind of state. Dopamine is our main reward chemical, right? We're motivated to do almost anything we want <laughs> to do because <laughs> right, we get exactly. some dopamine for it. Um, and so we get the dopamine, we get the anandamides, um, which also promote creativity. We start to recognize patterns. Um, and this is where the prefrontal cortex, that thinking part of the brain, that analyzing part of the brain, that critical part of the brain, which is super active in the struggle phase, in the flow state, that part actually really, really down regulates. So what happens is we start using less of our brain instead mm -hmm. of more of our brain. So basically there's two processing systems that we have. There is what's called the explicit system, which is that thinking, the prefrontal cortex. And there's what we call the implicit system, which is basically kind of the subconscious processing system. And when we get into flow, we actually switch over to that subconscious processing system. So it seems like we're not really thinking about what we're doing, we're just doing it. But we, our brain is still thinking about it, just kind of below the level of conscious, conscious thought. And so the reason this is important is because that system, the implicit processing system, is way, way faster. It's like having, you yeah. know, a fiber internet connection as opposed to like dial up, if anyone remembers yeah, this dial is the, up. This is the talent code stuff, right? Myelin, building that myelin and getting down into where like you're in that subconscious space where it's just firing because you've grooved the, the neural pattern so much. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely um, related. And the talent code uh, is one of my favorite books in terms of explaining to people the the science of skill acquisition and and you know what he's talking about what daniel coelho is talking about in the talent code with deep practice and being yeah. in the sweet spot as he calls it is basically one of the most important probably the most important trigger for flow which is skill and challenge being in balance and then just repetition and yeah and then once once you 
wrap that myelin around that circuit that you built, then That's you can yours. just execute it kind of mindlessly. Although you, yeah, your think, mind's still working, you just don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to me that like when I coach people or teach, I guess, I, I often talk about backing up to making make sure that all of the like sort of the most basic elements of what we do are set up correctly. Because if we do that and then we have, we don't necessarily leave that place, but we ingrain some proper habits, even in the most basic setup, if we wrap some myelin around that, then we own that, right? And then we can take that with us. This is how I feel like we start to build actual consistency versus just like I am today, I feel pretty good. And tomorrow I have none of my skills at all. To, to actually spend some time not just learning about that phase, but repetition in that phase of like, okay, I'm going to ingrain this. Then when we have it, we can apply it to a little bit more difficult stimulus next and a little bit more difficult. And we're gradually, like you said, as we as we get better at our instrument, we're managing that skill challenge thing on us on a continuum, like you were saying, instead of it being, this is hard for me, now it's easy, you continually uh, address it as you get better. Absolutely. And and that is one of the things that we have to do. And, and I think one of the things that makes it so much fun, right? And so continuously agreed. interesting. Yeah. Is I that, totally agreed. Yeah. Okay. I've got it now, but what's the next thing? And what's the, what's the next bump, right? And the reason that the flow state is important for this is that when we're in flow, our learning increases by something like anywhere between 300 and 500 percent which is crazy right (laughs) Um, and we know this we know this largely from studies that the military has done when they train up say radar operators they actually will induce a flow state by um using a, a magnetic pulse to kind of zap your brain and knocks temporarily knocks out the prefrontal cortex. It'll put someone into flow very quickly and then they'll train them as radar operators and they learn so quickly and they perform so much better because they get into that, just they can recognize all the patterns, they can see things really quickly. The other reason that flow enhances learning so much is because of there are a lot of neurochemicals present during flow. Um, we talked a little bit about it. There's We've got norepinephrine, we've got dopamine, we've got anandamides. Um, we've also got endorphins and there's serotonin involved. And the flow state's the only time that we get those five neurochemicals happening at the same time. And so it's very unique. And the way that the brain works is that so those neurochemicals basically tell the brain this is important you need to remember it so the more yeah, neurochemicals like, that are present the better we're going to learn something it's like once we experience that that's like we never go backwards right it's like oh my gosh i could have that feeling during practice what do i have to do to get back there totally totally you know and because we got kind of this cocktail right i mean if we think about <laughs> it we can we can think about those neurochemicals as being kind of analogous to, uh, you know, drugs that people take, right? Sure. So um, norepinephrine is basically speed. Um, <laughs> dopamine, good. right? Good like start. dopamine is basically <laughs> cocaine. 
You know, when yeah. you take cocaine, you just get a massive dopamine release. Um, anandamides, as we said, are like THC. Um, endorphins, opiates, right? Mm-hmm, right? And serotonin is basically like MDMA, right? And so it's kind of like your brain's getting this cocktail of of yeah. of uh, wow a lot of a lot of chemistry happening. Let's just put so it that So we've taken way. we've basically taken cocaine. <laughs> MDMA, what was it again? There's opiates. Uh, MDMA, um, <laughs> THC, THC, weed, and then opiates. That very first one. Those, yeah, like speed. Yeah, yeah, we've taken all five of those drugs naturally, and we were practicing our instrument, which is like the exact opposite of what that's supposed to feel like. Now, I, I don't <laughs> recommend anyone actually takes any of those. And- yeah, we need a control test to see if that's actually the feeling. And, and especially to... take them and then try to practice, right? So I'm not, I'm not yeah, right. advocating anything <laughs> like that. You might not get anything done. But it's, you know, it's fascinating that that our brain will produce this chemistry when we are working at this in this kind of optimum way. And um, it's a very kind of interesting sort of headspace to be in and it's yeah. you know because of this it's just a highly rewarding state and as you said once we get a little taste of it we want more of it yeah so we got a little off track i think talking about drugs there so to bring us back um the third um phase i can't remember the exact terminology but the third phase you're saying was actual flow state so then what would the fourth um the fourth one be to finish out that that group of four yeah, so the fourth one is actually maybe the most important um, in terms of creating and sustaining flow. And the fourth phase is a recovery phase. Yes. I've never heard you talk about this. I've never read, but I was so happy that there was some part of like, this is important to actually not be practicing. Like that's where you're going to actually learn and and ingrain these ideas. I'm so glad that that's, the, Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's, that's the part that we tend to ignore, right? We're, we're really driven, right? As musicians. And we kind of have this idea that the more I practice, the better, right? If I'm not working all the time, I'm I'm not, I'm I'm not going to make it. I'm not working hard enough. But yeah, the recovery phase is probably the one that, that most people need to really focus on because uh, you know, struggle, we are experts at, uh, yeah, right. re- release, it just takes, uh, you know, tweaking a few things really as we practice to be able to get out of struggle. Now struggle is required, but we can get, we can learn to get out of it faster and faster. The flow state just takes care of itself um, as long as we don't get in its way. But then recovery, we really have to take some active measures to recover. Now, we talked about those five neurochemicals. And when you're in flow, you're kind of burning through a lot of your feel-good neurochemistry. And so we have to allow ourselves to recover and build it back up. And so there's that aspect of recovery. There's also the aspect of recovery that you brought up, which is that consolidation of everything that we've learned, right? Our brain learns it, actually consolidates all of it when we're not practicing. So 
we have to have some kind of active recovery and active recovery basically just means recovery that is more effective than just doing nothing, right? So we want to have recovery not be just watching Netflix or watching YouTube or <laughs> sitting on the couch, right? Yeah. So right. <laughs> um, sleep is a huge part of it, you know, making sure we get enough sleep and quality sleep. Um, Recovery can be anything from mindfulness practices to spending time in nature to, you know, spending time with people who you have important relationships with, um, exercise, it, basically just things that will recharge and, and kind of rebuild all of that. So it's important to have a plan for what you're gonna to do to recover. And you know, a lot of times we think of these as resilience activities that we would use as part of managing our stress. You know, things like yoga, tai chi, all those sorts of, of activities. And, and this is where people can really, uh, you know, figure out what you like to do and what really works for you in terms of recharging and rebuilding. Uh, it's just, I have so many thoughts. You cannot believe how many thoughts I have right now. So we'll try to get them all. The first one is, does your brain know the difference between the flow state that you might enter in practice and the 5% flow state that you may be in the rest of the day? Can it distinguish between those two? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think flow from a neurochemical perspective, flow is flow. But I think the, the question is really goes back to what you mentioned a, a little bit ago, which is, are we aware when we are in flow? I think a lot of times we're, when we're in that 5% of the time that we just are spontaneously in flow, we're totally unaware that it's happening, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, when we're trying to generate flow when we practice and then when we perform, uh, I think that's that's different only because it's more of a conscious choice that we're making and that we are are directing what we're doing towards generating the state. So we're trying to get there on purpose. Yeah. And so the only reason I asked that question is it would give that much more importance to the idea of recovery if we're purposefully in flow state over here, but then we're accidentally in flow state other times during the day. Like that's more of those chemicals that are burning more that we would need to recover from. So it's maybe not necessarily paying attention to whether you're in flow state more often, just putting that much more of a priority on the idea of recovery to get back what we need. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about recovery is that, you know, it's not only something that we need to do after flow, but if we don't do it, we'll have a very hard time getting into flow. Sure. So it's kind of a precondition that has to happen before we can actually do it. But then we also have to make sure that we do it again with to close out the cycle so we can start it all over again. So just focusing on recovery can be something that will let somebody start to get more flow all by itself. Gosh, there's, there's just so many things in my own life that would support this idea. Number one would be I'll, I work out a lot. And so recovery is actually the, again, the most important part, making sure you're eating enough, making sure you're hydrated enough, make sure you're sleeping enough because that's where your muscles rebuild themselves. And so if you're tired and you go to the gym, you're going to start digging into your reserves in a muscular way. 
but your central nervous system is attached to all of that kind of stuff. And so you dig into that as well. So that's part of my method that I've developed is based on that, like trying to give yourself space from various exercises or work that you're doing to allow recovery, mostly from a mental space. But for brass players, there's a physical element as well. So it came from exercise science, but it, it absolutely is held up in what you're describing in flow state as um, getting the most out of your practice sessions um, and being able to get back into flow would be recovery. The other one would be working with my um, consultant career coach, awesome friend, Karen Kubitis. She talks about um, what do I need to be my best, to show up to be my best at all different things. And basically recovery, exercise, walking, and then and, and like a nature preserve or something. All of these things are, are she, she describes it from a place of this allows you to recharge your battery so you can show up for the various roles that you have in your life, but it would be supported in what you just described as uh, maintaining an optimal flow state, which is like, maybe that's obviously going to be pervasive. Sorry for this long rant, but it's kind of connecting a lot of ideas. It's going to be pervasive no matter what you're doing flow state. Like it doesn't have to be just like you were saying in practice. And so if we can find flow state with hanging out with our kids or sitting on the deck with your significant other or something like that, you're going to experience the same endorphins, those same kind of loss of time type feelings, I assume. And so it's supported all over the place that recovery is one of the most important aspects. Like you were saying, if we just focus on that, we're going to start getting more out of everything. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really a case of the more flow you have, the more flow you have. So all of us have different activities that get us into, get us into that feeling of flow. And, you know, for musicians, we want playing music to be one of those activities right? and, and, you know, it, for most of us, it, it surely is because otherwise, why would we go through all of this discomfort? <laughs> right? Sure. Totally. Um, that there's this redemption of the struggle on the other side. Right. And, mm -hmm. but we want to have just more than just the one, right? So for some people, flow activities might be doing things with their kids. Um, for some people, it's certain kinds like runners, right? Get into flow or running. Um, my main flow activity actually is Tai Chi and, and performing and playing my instrument um, oh, and writing. So you want to kind of find different places where, you know, just like we're kind of going to cross train different parts of our bodies when we're talking about physical training you want to cross train flow so it takes a little bit of the pressure off right that i don't have right. to just generate flow states when i'm practicing it's like no well we can learn to do it when we practice we can learn to do it when we perform and ideally when we learn to generate flow when we practice that's what helps to bridge the gap between the practice room and the stage because we're going for the same feeling um but I can generate flow when I'm, you know, exercising, when I'm doing something with my family, when I'm out in nature. So the more flow we have, the more flow we have. And so there's really no downside to finding all the places where we can, we can get into that space. But the more we do that, the more important it is to recover. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and along with recovery, because, uh, you know, I think what you were talking about with focusing on recovery being one of the things that can just help you get more flow by itself. Another thing is just 
reducing the things that are not essential. And this actually comes from a, a very technical uh, kind of standpoint where there's a concept called cognitive load, which is basically all the things that our mind is trying to deal with at once. Um, in a very, very basic way, it has to do with how many items are brain can hold in its working memory at a time. And it's really only about seven things, plus or minus two. <laughs> uh, there's a famous paper um, called The Magical Number Seven, Plus or Minus Two. <laughs> um, That's awesome. <laughs> and so basically, we can only remember seven things at once. That's why phone numbers were seven numbers long, right? right? Seven yeah, I've read long. about that. Um, and the more complex a task becomes, the fewer things we can hold in our memory. So playing an instrument is a very complicated task. And so we, we want to reduce all the stuff that we're trying to deal with down to only what is essential for me to focus on. And, you know, all the things that trigger flow, they do two things. They drive our focus into the present moment and they lower that cognitive load. So they reduce all the number of things we have to think about. But relating it back to recovery, the reason that I brought it up there was that to recover, to do those things, you have to eliminate other things. Mm -hmm. So if we can find places where we are contributing to things we're trying to keep track of, things we're doing that we don't really care about, things that don't really relate back to the things that we really value doing. And um, this doesn't mean that we single-mindedly focus on music to the exclusion of everything else. It actually means that we open up our pursuit of being great performers to these other things, like taking care of myself as part of this, engaging with friends and family as part of this, uh, you know, doing exercise or being in nature as part of this. And what am I willing to give up to do those things so that I focus on the things that I really care about that really, as you said, regenerate you so that we can get into flow. And the interesting thing for me was that when I first started training in flow, um, I, I've done training with a organization called the Flow Research Collective. One of the first things that they had us do was really talk about how can I eliminate this unnecessary cognitive load. So what can I simplify? What can I eliminate? What can I make easier? Um, both in terms of my general life and in terms of my practice. And then how am I going to recover? It was kind of shocking actually that I'd been working with flow triggers and all these things in my practice. But once I did those two things outside of the practice room, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm like in flow all the time. Not all the time, because that's not possible. Yeah. Actually, you would go insane if you were in flow all the time. <laughs> but it was happening so much more often. I'm like, wow, it's really, it really is about, like you said, the recovery piece and the simplification piece that enables us to, to get into that state when we want to. 
Yeah. Everything you're saying reminds me very much of just the practice of something like mindfulness, trying to be as present as possible. We are, we will, especially in the beginning, struggle with this because we are used to what we're used to. We're used to being distracted. We're used to our mind being everywhere else, but where we are. And so I have found even just minimal, this is what I was asking about, is even just thinking about flow state enough to sort of trigger it? Because I find just being aware that there's a different, possible different way or a different space, mental space you can be in sort of starts you down that road. And so um, maybe as an encouragement, we're going to continue talking about this a little bit, but as an encouragement to anyone listening who uh, I feel might struggle with finding flow state, just knowing that it exists and it's possible for you is a very good place to start, I feel like. That is probably the most important place to start because, you know, one of the fundamental things about this. And actually I have what I call the four fundamentals of flow that I teach people to get started really quickly. The first one is choose your mindset. And a lot of that has to do with just what do I believe is possible? Do I believe that I can do this, that I can get into a flow state, first of all? And then what's what's gonna be my best mindset for getting there? for accomplishing what I'm trying to do. So what what's the best thing I can be thinking right now? What do I wanna feel right now? And this actually does go back to mindfulness because mindfulness is such a huge spectrum, basically um, of awareness, right? Um, right. But one thing that, that you can do as a mindfulness practice is just to become aware of the process of how your thoughts kind of influence everything else that happens, right? So we have a thought and that thought produces some kind of feeling. Um, And we're gonna, it's just kind of slowing the roll of, of how anything goes down. I have a thought and then I feel something in response to it, which is just my brain getting my body's attention somehow, like, hey, this is what what we make this mean in a physical kind of way. Right. Then as soon as I feel something, that makes me want to act in a certain way. So, so often we focus on, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to practice this, 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 and this. But we don't figure out, well, what's, how should I really be feeling to practice this in the best way? And then to go up one layer, well, now, okay, what can I think that'll produce that feeling that will then get me to do those things, right? We often talk about, uh, are you willing to do what it takes to accomplish whatever goal it is, right? But the question, most of us, we often are, but the question is really like, am I willing to feel what it takes? Because in the case of being a musician, it might take feeling frustration. It will definitely take feeling fear. Yeah, right. Right? It's going to take feeling some discomfort. Um, And then am I willing to think what I need to think? Am I willing to believe what I need to believe? So uh, Carol Dweck um, is a uh, psychologist at Stanford. And she's done the foundational research on mindset and she kind of identifies two kinds of mindset. Growth mindset, basically meaning, do I believe that I can get better? 
do I believe that uh, talent, quote unquote, whatever that is, is just a starting point for hard work? Or do I believe that uh, I can only be as good as I can be right right now? And that's what we call a fixed mindset um, that my, my potential is predefined. Um, and the fact is that this belief talking about flow, the belief that flow exists or the recognition that exists, and then the belief that I, I can access it directly impacts our ability to do it or to do anything. Because one of the very interesting things that she found is she took people who had been identified as having fixed mindsets or growth mindsets and uh, gave them a challenging problem and did, I, I you know, I wish I knew exactly if it was like an fMRI or, or what the scan, the brain scanning was that they were doing at, at the time. But basically they gave people a challenge and then they observed what was happening in the brain when they were working on this challenge. And the people who had the fixed mindsets, who didn't believe that they that they were in control of how good they could be, um, their brain just it didn't even try. Huh. So it, it, there was it didn't even show activity in the parts of the brain that would be processing the task. They might have mm -hmm. thought they were trying, but essentially they they'd given up. But all this was below the level of consciousness. Whereas the people who had growth mindsets, who believed it was possible to figure stuff out. Um, there was all kinds of activity in the brain, the problem solving centers, basically. So this, uh, I know I've kind of gotten off on a tangent, no, but going back great. to your question about just knowing that it exists, yeah, just knowing it exists and then believing that it's possible, that belief, and a belief is just like a thought that we assume right. is true, right? <laughs> so the belief is going to actually like physically unlock our brain so that it can do more. Um, in addition to giving us a way to kind of engineer how we want to feel, how we want to approach what we practice so that we can really decide, okay, if I'm, if I'm focusing on this problem at the level of thought, then I'm going to have so much more leverage than if I just try to do what I know I need to do, but I'm fighting against like, I don't really think I can do it, or I'm not sure I can do it, or I'm scared, or I'm uncomfortable, and I don't, I'm resisting it. Um, yeah. How long have you been, you said you did some uh, flow training. So like, how long has this been a part of your uh, being and your process? Well, it started, as I said, I've kind of been focused on the the mental side and connecting mental training with musical training for, you know, 20 plus years. Um, but I would say that I started really focusing on it very specifically in this way, probably about two years ago. Um, mm -hmm. I was introduced to a very specific uh, kind of analytical coaching methodology. 
And uh, I was introduced to, to it actually in a like weight loss, weight management program that focused on the mental side of it. So we like we all know how to lose weight, right? It's pretty easy. Just right. stop overeating. Well, it's simple. <laughs> I think it's not always easy, but yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's simple, um, but it's not easy to do. And so, you know, what what is the mental side of how do I manage my mind so that I I can do this because that's always been something um, maintaining my weight for my whole adult life has been something that I've worked on and, and mm-hmm. being fit. And I knew that again, I was like, okay, there's a mental component to this that I need to master so that I'm not constantly struggling with it. And so this particular methodology, which is basically what I just outlined thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we start with what I'm thinking and then how that makes me feel, what that makes me want to do, and then what all those things that I then do get me as the end result of this whole process. Um, that was pretty immediately obvious to me to be directly related to right. to, to practicing. <laughs> and, and okay, so this is fascinating. How can I apply this to what I'm doing in the practice room and then what my students are doing? Um, So I started playing around with that, experimenting on myself, working with some of my just private students, my bassoon students. Then I actually went through uh, a certification program in that particular life coaching method. So I'm a certified coach in that process and I've started applying that directly to how do I adapt this for musicians. And part of it Mm -hmm. is that kind of core mindset work. Um, Then as I did that, I did that for about, oh, I would say six or seven months. Then I realized, okay, all of this leads to a flow state. And now I need to figure out everything I can about this flow state thing and what it actually is, as opposed to what I just have heard about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's been probably about seven months that I've really been focusing on flow specifically, but I've in retrospect, it's all been about flow. I just didn't know that's what it was called. Yeah. So the burning question, right? The burning question probably on everybody's mind, we've been talking about this for like 51 minutes now, right? This is awesome. And I love this conversation. I still have so many thoughts. Um, But the burning question has to be, what's the difference, right? What would be the difference between what I normally practice like, and now that I'm in flow state, not only mentally, but in terms of actual skill acquiring and being able to can re- retain information and possibly success and performance. Like what are the differences you've noticed in your own practice? And then possibly the students that you've worked with just maybe generalities or specific examples, but I'd be really curious and I'm sure other people would too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the biggest things that I have noticed in my own practice and then in um, with some of my students is that I learn things much more quickly. Um, the, the, the first time I really started playing with it, I've been thinking about it, but um, 
I had just learned about the skill challenge balance. And of course, we all know that we have to challenge ourselves just enough, right? That goes back to the talent code. But learning what the skill challenge balance actually should be, the ideal balance is really only about 4% of challenge. So what I mean by that is if we've got where we are now, we want the task that we're working on to be about 4% harder than we could currently do, which is actually kind of a, a tricky balance to find because we tend to try to go way past it, try to make something a lot harder and then we miss it or we try to avoid it, right? We want to stay in our comfort zone and we, we don't, we stay below the 4%. So the reason that I bring 4% up is because once I heard this, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. You could totally map that on to the metronome, right? What would that look like in terms of a metronome curve? And what it is is it ends up being an exponential curve where you work in slow tempos for a comparatively long time. So for example, what 4% would look like if you're starting say at uh, quarter root equals 60, between 60 and 96 would only be about three beats per minute. Now it's not exact uh, because we don't have metronomes with decimal points, thankfully. <laughs> seriously, yeah, seriously. <laughs> Let's not give anyone any ideas. <laughs> Um, but roughly speaking, you know, this metronome curve of about three beats per minute increments of increase between 60 and 96, between 96 and 120 goes up to four, between 120 and like 135, about five, and then, uh, or yeah, about five. And then we can start going up by sixes, it'll take you up to about 170, which, you know, I'm a bassoon player, so like, we don't need to play faster. <laughs> nice. Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> um, but so I, I mentioned that because I think the skill challenge balance is the most important thing for getting into flow when you practice and, and being able to stay in it, making sure that you're challenging yourself just the right amount. And so tempo is the easiest way to approach it. Totally. Yeah. And I love it because it's just, it's just math, right? It's just dialing the number and do yeah. it. So when I first started doing this, I had kind of gotten myself into one of those spots. It was that rough time of the semester when there was, it was like the middle of the semester, a lot was going on. I had a bunch of concerts and I had a concert, I had two concerts coming up that were like one right after the other. And um, one was a new piece that I had to learn that was uh, pretty, pretty technical, had a lot of extended techniques. And I just, you know, let's just be honest, I did not start early enough. <laughs> We've all been there. None of us have never done that, right? <laughs> never, never. So I had to learn it really quickly. And I was thinking, oh, man, I might have I might have really like messed this one up this time. <laughs> um, and I had some other things to learn, too, that were not were more conventional things I'd played before. But still, it was just there was a lot of music to prepare. And so I said, well, What's it going to hurt if, if I try this, if I really try focusing on this 4%, staying in this challenge zone 
um, which essentially really meant working slower than I normally would have, even though I believe very much in slow practice. Um, I did this and I used that metronome curve and I learned, it, I would say probably it took me only 50% of the time. I was constantly astonished that I could play this. I was like, I can't believe I can, I can do this. Um, and the retention from practice session to practice session was much better, as you said. Now there's always, you always kind of want to start maybe a little bit slower than you ended at the last session to kind of work your way back, ease your way back into it so you're not over challenging yourself at the beginning. But so I remembered it much better. The experience of it when I'm actually practicing is so I can start feeling like I'm in that struggle phase, like, okay, this is hard, it's not really getting it. Dial my tempo back until I find the spot where it kind of all clicks in. And when I'm in that tempo, I can recognize it because the number of errors reduces down to maybe just one or two errors. Um, they're small and they're not a big deal. And because of that, they're easy for me to notice and fix. And finding them and then correcting them, it feels more like I just sort of realize that, oh, okay, yeah, I need to fix that thing and I know exactly what to do to fix it. Right, right. As opposed to being kind of overloaded by a thousand different things that are wrong. Um, and then what comes in after that are some other things that we would call flow triggers, which is you kind of feel a little bit curious, like, oh, I wonder what's happening here. How can I fix this? Um, curiosity itself is something that'll trigger flow. Um, you can be aware of multiple sensory streams coming at the same time. So you're aware of what the music looks like, you're aware of how it feels to play, you're aware of your tone, you're aware of the intonation, you're aware of other sounds in the room. So that's kind of expanding awareness. That's called deep embodiment in flow speak. <laughs> if I can use flow speak for a minute. Sure. You do whatever um, that's you want. The, the deep embodiment trigger. And so you'll kind of become aware of all those things. So it's like when, you know, sometimes when we practice technique, we tend to forget about what do I sound like? How is my intonation? How's the connection between the notes? Because we're so concerned with just uh, how fast are my fingers moving? Right. That um, I feel like I'm working on all those things all at once. And I'm very aware of how things feel just in my body when I'm playing. And so those are kind of the hallmarks for me of some of the signs. Some of the other signs of it are, um, honestly, it's a physical sensation that you will learn to recognize. That's a little bit hard to describe. It's a little bit of a, um, it's, it's not relaxation. And, you know, I ask a lot of students, how do you want to feel when you play? I want to feel comfortable. I want to feel relaxed. And I'm like, really? Do you want to really feel like you're in sweatpants on the couch <laughs> when you're playing? <laughs> it's like, no, it's kind of a feeling of engagement, slight agitation, like excitement, right? Yeah. Just so you like kind of massive. want to get a little bit of that feeling. It's just like total focus the way I think about it. You're just, you, you just, you know what you're doing 
and you know basically how you're going to go about doing it and you just got to do it. And so you're focused on everything that could be different from what you imagine you want to be, right? So I have this image in my head. I'm assuming that's a huge part of all of this too, is having an image of what you think it should be so that when you're paying attention to all of these sensory streams, you have sort of a, a, a model that you're holding your own playing against. But then it's just like, oh, that's not the same what do I do? You're, there's like, for me, less judgment involved. It's just like, oh, that's not quite the same. What do I think is going to help me fix that and get me closer to the model that I hear in my head? Not like I'm, I'm bad because I can't do that. Just it's not the same. What do I got to do? Totally. That's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So there's this, this idea of the internal model. I call it sometimes the mental map um, of what does it look like? Right, so that's part of what having a clear goal will get you. You wanna know what it is you're aiming to do. So you want to have a, an idea of what you want it to sound like, an idea of what you want it to feel like, and to have that in place. Um, and there's certain practice techniques that you can use to kind of build that model, that underlying structure, that then when you're in flow, it's like you said, you're not really judging it, you're just, you're switching over to what I call like a real-time monitoring system. So yeah, instead of yeah. listening and thinking, how was that? Was that right? Was that wrong? What was wrong? You just sort of hear, you're like, oh, I sense a discrepancy between what that felt like or what that sounded like and what my model is. So yeah. I'm gonna just going to go fix that little thing. And the key to the skill challenge balance is keeping it easy enough well, well, first of all, challenging enough that you have a discrepancy because going back to the talent code, the only way to build your skill is to have a discrepancy and then bring it to alignment and do it again. So you, you have to have that, but then to have it be small enough that it's something that you can recognize easily within that real-time monitoring, that kind of instinctive system where you're like, oh yeah, I just hear that 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 note is not quite right. Let me go isolate that. Let me fix that. Okay, now let's do the whole thing again. Okay, now how is that? And um, when we're in flow, that'll all, the assessment portion of it kind of happens, as you said, automatically. And it's not about us. It's just about the model of what we're comparing right. it to. Yeah. So then basically the model is one of the most important. I mean, this would be true whether you're in flow state or not, but having that model seems like it enhances flow state to a, a great degree. So we can, we can aim to be in flow state, but if we get there and we have nothing that we're sort of trying to achieve or trying to that 4% difference, uh, it'll be possibly beneficial to be in flow state, but in order to maximize your time there, it's probably important to make sure you have that that model of what 4% or maybe not 4%. The way I think about it, I just said this on an Instagram story is I try to slow down to the place that I'm already the player I want to be just slower, right? Like not because uh, in, 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 in working out, you could max what we do in the, in, in practice rooms all the time is we just max out basically. Right. We're like, I would like to be able to squat 300 and whatever pounds. So I can't right now do that, but I'm still going to put that amount of weight on the bar and I'm just going to keep doing it until magically one day I can do it. And like, maybe 
maybe that will work, but most likely you're going to develop a bunch of habits, bad habits. You might get injured and um, you're going to probably ingrain improper form because when you can't really control the variables with weight, it's like everything's in a kinetic chain, right? And so maybe your legs are strong enough to do it, but maybe smaller muscles can't handle that load. And so we have to back up to where we can do things ideally perfectly and then build ourselves back up. And so that's a lot of the model I've taken is what does it look like if I just backed up to where I could do everything exactly the way I wanted and then just slowly built my way back up to wherever I need to be for a particular performance. I love that analogy. Yeah. That, uh, that's yeah, such a, a great way of saying it that, you know, when we, when we think we need to go to a certain tempo right away, right. It's like putting 300 pounds of weight. Yeah, right. It's like, if you were doing that in the gym, it'd be like, of course that's insane. Totally. We all get it. We all get it. But as musicians, we think, I think there's, I mean, of course we could talk about this, um, it's just, I, I think there's so much emotion involved with, I have to prove to myself I can play this. So I'm just going to go up there and like, I'm okay if it's not exactly perfect. As long as I can prove to other people, I can almost do it. Then they'll think I'm a good enough player or something. I think with so much of what we do is comparative. One thing I love about this, I, after we talk about this little thing, I kind of want to just run you through quickly, like what my sort of approach to this is to see if you have any things that you could add. But, um, I think when we come up with the ability to be in flow state and we have our model that we are trying to aspire to for ourselves, it really does take everybody else out of the equation. And we're just trying to build our best version of ourselves. And we don't need others to be less so we can achieve or we don't feel like we are going to try to present a sub-optimal product to people and hope that they just don't see the errors. We just feel like we have a plan that we can, maybe we're not there yet, but I feel like I'm making progress and that's really all we can do at any given point in time. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And that's where the, the mental management aspect of it is so important um, because learning to recognize when we're, when we're thinking something that is, you know, comparing ourselves to somebody else or, feeling like we have to prove to ourselves that we can do something by playing it at a certain tempo. It's like, oh, I have to, uh, if I can't do it this way, then obviously I'm not good enough, right? <laughs> so many things right, boil yeah. down to just like, well, I'm not good enough. I can't prove it in this particular way, especially then I, I want to prove it in front of somebody else. And, you know, all those thoughts, which basically go down to having self-confidence, right? Um, and the self-confidence to take, let other people not be part of the, of the, of the equation. Um, that all comes down to being able to manage our thoughts, manage our emotions. And that doesn't mean not thinking things and not feelings. It, it really means being willing to feel uncomfortable, being willing to feel insecure and also then being willing to feel confident. It's being willing to, to feel really anything that comes up on stage or in the practice room so that we can handle it. Because so much of that side of it, which creates chronic stress and then blocks flow, is about wanting to avoid discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, I would love your thoughts on 
this thing I'm about to say, I really believe I've come to the conclusion that the birthplace of all of this kind of growth is just being honest, being real with yourself. Like you say, this is where I'm at. These are the things I'm good at. These are the things I struggle with. And that's okay. How do I make a plan? How do I do this so I can move forward? And then if your plan hopefully has a model and we start to work towards flow state, it's like you're saying, we almost like lose track of time. It's no longer in a big deal to work on our weaknesses. It's just like this, this ebb and we're just moving, moving forward, doing it. But I think honesty is the most important part. And then being kind to yourself that it's like, it's okay if I'm not perfect in every way possible, <laughs> like what can we do to move myself forward? Yeah. Because essentially where we are right now, what our current level of whether it's a tempo, how fast we can play something or how well in tune we can play something or what we what our tone is like, right? What wherever our current state is, whether it's as a player in general or with a particular passage, it just is what it is, right? Like yeah. there's no point in arguing with reality. Like you said, you just want to be honest about where it is. And that can be something that we can view as a totally neutral thing. Like, okay, I can only play Marriage of Figaro at 96 today. That is where, as you said, I love the way you put it, I'm the player I want to be at this tempo. Now, that's just, that's just a fact. All so right. it's only a problem when I make that mean, oh, that's not fast enough. Oh, it needs to be 144. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, I'll never win an audition. Oh, all those things, right? So that recognition of, yeah, this is just the reality of today. And until I accept that as not being anything other than just the current state of affairs, then I'm always fighting against something, fighting against a judgment, basically. And that's where right. what you said about being kind to yourself comes in. So recognize what is, and then recognize that anything else is just our interpretation of it, what we mm -hmm. make it mean, right? And so yeah, often yeah. we make where we are today mean something about ourselves, about us as humans, like the fact that I can only play Figaro at 96 on a given day. Well, right? And then with that fixed mindset, it also means that that's what it is for the future too. Like that's where I'm going to be. That's as far as I got. I, I'm never going to make it. Not like maybe with the understanding I have, this is where it's brought me today. So either I just need to keep working or I need to go to someone who will open my eyes to something that maybe will unlock that next level. I think it makes even playing for teachers or playing for coaches, if you're you know someone like me and you don't have regular lessons, but you still could use feedback. I feel like it makes that so much more effective because you're not, you're not dependent on them to to guide you and to hold your hand, you're saying, I'm at this, I'm stuck right here. Like what, what am I not doing? And you're really getting right to the root of what it is so that they can kind of open your eyes. And then you just go and do your plan or, or, or try to whatever it is, but you're not necessarily reliant hundred percent on somebody else to be the reason you're getting better. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's another aspect of this, which we can talk about, you know, intrinsic motivation, which is just being self-motivated, right? Motivated by doing the task itself, internal motivation versus extrinsic motivation, which is being motivated by some external force. Could be a teacher, could be a coach, could be, you know, the conductor, it could be anything. 
but when we're in school, I see this a lot with my students, and it's actually been a really interesting thing to observe in the time of of COVID, because suddenly a lot of our, including us professionals, our extrinsic motivators are, are gone, right? Right. Like yeah. there's no gigs, there's no concerts to play right now. At least <laughs> not for me. So I know some orchestras are still doing some um, some things, but for most of us, like we're kind of on this hiatus, and so how do we? have that internal motivation and that in, internal uh, kind of uh, responsibility for ourselves getting better so that it's not motivated by someone else telling us what to do, whether it's a teacher telling us how to get better, even though certainly you want, what you want a teacher to do really is just to show you something that you were not aware of yourself. Totally, you know? yeah. Um, and then it's up to us to take the internal motivation and and the plan, as you said, and then move it all forward on our own. Yeah. So if you'll indulge me for a second and my audience will indulge me for a second, that component of it right there is what I'm obsessed with is the component of how do we help? How do I take what I know about practicing and give it to somebody in a way that is useful? Because I think so much of the way we talk about practice is like so personal and it's so like you do your thing and you'll figure it out. And I think there's absolutely an element of personalized attention in someone's best practice habits. But I think a lot of people don't get there because they don't have that initial kick of like what it even looks like in a general sense to be efficient. This is like what I imagine your work on flow state is about. It's like, here's a good start to figuring out what a good practice session looks like, you know, or what, it, and really being able to define what is a successful practice session, like being able to make those parameters for yourself. And so one of the ways I try to, using your terminology, the very first, the struggle phase, I actually try to avoid that altogether by, I try to make a plan. Uh, I plan my practice out a month at a time. And so I do all of the planning away from the horn. And so I'm imagining, sort of imagining the struggle phase and saying, okay, I want to get better at lip flexibilities. What things do I want to be able to do? And then I put it into my program, right? And so I've thought everything through and then I, I do that for the various things I would like to do. And then I was thinking about flow state because I, I, I started originally with this idea of, well, what if I just started all of my exercises at half tempo? And then just added, I, I work in percentages. So I just added 10% each week to a, a an ultimate uh, goal tempo. And that was awesome. And I really liked it, but it took too long. And I didn't want to have to go back to 50% on something that I felt like I was already like pretty good at. So then that's like exactly what I ran into. You made a Facebook post. This was like in February. You made a Facebook post about flow state and I started thinking, okay, what percentages of a goal of a hundred would flow state entail? Like what is not fast enough, not so fast you can't do it, but not so slow you're bored. Uh, and I came up with basically between 65% and 90%. And so my, my, over the course of a number of weeks, my, uh, the program will start slow 
and it'll work its way up to the goal tempo by the end, right? And then I also switch between three tempo ranges. So every week I see each exercise three times at a fast, a medium, and a slow tempo. So then the fast tempo is like a little bit reaching, right? A tiny bit reaching, but it really it informs me of where the gaps are. And then the slow tempos are where I really ingrain those habits. And it and it came from like, well, where would it be where it's just a challenge? And so the first question I would like to ask, you can obviously comment on any of what I just said, but the first question I'd like to ask is, in my opinion, it seems like flow is not necessarily a specific place, but it, based on what your goal is and what you're trying to accomplish, it seems like it can be a, a, a range. Like for me, if my goal is to challenge myself, it might be a little bit faster tempo than if my goal is to ingrain something Perfectly, if that makes sense. So for me, flow is depend is also goal dependent on what do you think is the most beneficial thing for you at this moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm really glad you brought that up because you know what we talked about earlier was kind of tempo oriented, right? So yeah, no matter what, I mean. So there are three fundamental things that have to be in place to get into flow. They're the kind of three foundational flow triggers the skill challenge balance. So being somewhere around the 4%. Now, we don't know if 4% is the actual number. That's something that Chick sent me high and a mathematician from Google kind of came up with on the back of a napkin one night, you know? <laughs> um, but it's very, uh, it's very useful. Like it really works. Whether it's that number or not, it, it does seem to be incredibly accurate in terms of experience. So you want to keep skill and challenge and balance. You have to have a clear goal. So what you're trying to do, and we'll talk in just a, a second about how that clear goal actually changes the skill challenge balance and how you calculate that. And then you have to have immediate feedback about how you're doing. And so the feedback piece tends to take care of itself as long as we are not indulging in judgment of it, right? So. What you just uh, asked about how how your goal can change how you might challenge yourself, I think is really, really important because sometimes we challenge ourselves through making something faster, right? But we can also challenge ourselves by making something slower, right? Like you said, if you're really right. trying to ingrain something, well, then the skill challenge balance just becomes, what am I really trying to get better at here. It's not, repetition is never really mindless. There's always some, when, when we slow something down to really ingrain it, we're always gonna find the little something, right? The something that's a tiny error, a tiny discrepancy, a tiny inefficiency that we wouldn't notice if we were working on the tempo side of it on trying to, okay, what's my 4% of like, what's the next level I can play it cleanly? Yeah. But no, yeah. like what's my 4% in terms of perfection, perfection of connection, yes. perfection of tone, perfection of intonation. Yeah. Slowing it down lets us recognize those things. So as long as you're always looking for what's the little thing I can make better, what's the little thing I can bring into focus, you're still gonna stay there. But you're right, depending on what you're trying to work on, that definition of skill and what is skill and what is challenge will change. 
and our perception of it will is important too. So we can always say, okay, where's the challenge of this? Like, you know, I, I will give this example sometimes. Sometimes we play pieces that we don't think are very exciting, right? Um, but you can always find something challenging in it. Like, I don't know of a single thing that I can do on my instrument that is not challenging in some way. I mean, whole notes are challenging, <laughs> right? Yeah. So Depending on your mindset, I, yeah. What can I focus on? What can I make better? What can I make more perfect in this? To keep myself in that zone, whether I'm working on something that's a very slow perfection, uh, just skill building phase or whether it's more of a tempo push phase of just being aware that we're always trying to bring those things into balance. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. So there's a few things. I had this thought that I wanted to take it in, but what you just said there at the end is um, I think there are different phases of learning. I also think there's a difference between I am maintaining a fundamentals routine and I'm getting ready to play a piece of music. I think those are two completely different things. Um, so I guess to, to, to talk to the original thing, the reason I, I have sort of fallen into adding faster tempos throughout the process is I have found in my own practice, if I spend a lot of time playing slow, uh, and I don't have a way to relate it back to what I'm doing in terms of performance or near performance, I have, I'll have the tendency to ingrain something differently because it sounds so different at a slow tempo. I also find slow tempo practice to be one of actually a skill in and of itself to learn how to effectively use that to, so I don't know if you have any strategies that you've found for making sure if you're going to spend a lot of time at slow tempos, how to make sure that it's going to benefit you in the end and not, I accidentally ingrained something completely different from what I wanted it to be because I just couldn't remember how it was supposed to sound or go. Yeah. So there's a couple things. One is that um, making sure that we're not working slowly just for the sake of working slowly, that we're always working at a, a given tempo because that is the right tempo for us to be in that 4% flow zone for a, the given skill that we're trying to work on. So sometimes I think we'll work super, super slow but we don't really know why. And then we have a hard time connecting it. And that as soon as we get to the point where it slots in to feeling good, we bump it up another 4% in whatever way that is, right? Could be tempo, it could be playing a longer passage, it could be lots of things to, to manage that. But the other thing, and I think this is actually the, the, the most important thing of what you just said, is that when we play something really slowly, we build that model, that mental map of the skill of the passage and of how it sounds slow. So a lot of times when we bump a tempo up, we can struggle at playing something at a tempo, not because our body doesn't want to do it, but because our brain is not thinking of it in that tempo. We don't have like a mental musical conception of it. So one thing that I do is I'll alternate what I'll call like a macro, a big picture practice technique. So for me, that is often something like audiation. So hearing a passage in my mind. So if I'm, let's just say I'm working on something slow, then I'm going to play it faster. Um, before I try to play something faster, I'll make sure that I can audiate it 
mm. at that tempo, that I can hear it at that tempo in my mind. Um, and if I can't, there'll often be like a little gap somewhere. That's always going to be where I make the mistake. And it's not because my fingers can't do it. It's because my brain just doesn't, there, there's, there's a literal like blank space in the, in the model of the, of the skill or of the phrase. So I make sure that I can audiate it or I can solfege it or something at that tempo so that then when I go to play it, the background picture is filled in. And for me, that's the key to being able to connect slow practice with faster practice is not just going to be faster, but say, okay, now do I have a model of it at this tempo? So building the model is important. So for me, one of the most difficult aspects of flow state and just finding that place in practice is just finding the right place to start. Like what's the right tempo that's going to be not necessarily like before you've figured out, okay, this is 4%. Like even before that is like, where is even the right place to start? Do you have tips and tricks on how somebody might, the way I've approached it is just to start too slow and eventually you'll find it, right? Just do you work yourself up and then away and eventually you'll find it. And the reason I like that is not only will you eventually find it and then it'll be difficult, but also you're probably, if it's too slow, ingraining good habits along the way. Um, so I don't know if you have any other tips or tricks or anything like that for finding the right starting place, because once it's there, it's, I think, not hard, but it's actually easier once you're there. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, your approach is not a bad approach at all, because, you know, honestly, it's pretty hard to really play something too slow, right? As long as you're still focusing on, okay, what are the, what are the errors? What are the little the little things that I need to tweak, what are the little refinements I need to make in a certain tempo. And as you said, as long as you're paying attention to those things, you're gonna be ingraining good habits along the way. But it's not always super efficient to just always start slow and move up. So what, what I've found works really well for me is to start at what I think is a reasonable tempo. Like where do I think I can probably play this at? see how it goes. All right. Okay. How is that? Am I, am I kind of struggling with it? Am I making a lot of mistakes? Now dial it backwards 4%. So let's say I think I can play something at mm. 70, uh, I don't know, 72 or something, right? Dial it back to 69. Okay. Now let me try it. Okay, no, I'm still kind of struggling a little bit. Now dial it back one notch, dial it back to 66. Yeah. Then you'll feel it, you'll feel yourself, I find it easier to recognize if I start a little too fast and slowly mm -hmm. back my way down to it. Okay, that's the tempo. Everything feels natural now. I can focus on my tone and on my fingers. I can focus on the connection between the notes. Now, once I get it here, now I start bumping it back up. So that's, that's one way. Yeah. The, the, like to me, the way that the thing I would be worried about would be hypothetically ingraining bad habits, but because you're starting too fast. Right. But if, if the way you just described is you're already coming from a place of, well, what's reasonable. So like if I'm being honest with myself, where do I think I can do it? So most likely if you are making mistakes, you're not that far away from where you're in flow state. I, I'm a believer that like, you know, two or three or something bad reps 
or almost perfect reps are not really going to outweigh the possible benefit of when you hit flow state. And so it's worth those few uh, reps that are a little bit imperfect to find that spot that, um, I don't even know that as I say that it just seems absurd too, because a lot of times the alternative for people is just to be like, well, I don't want to take the time to find that. So I'm just going to like play it wrong all the time at tempo. Like it doesn't make any sense to me actually why we wouldn't all do this. No, I know. But, but we, we, we all want to not do it is the thing. Like we either want to start too slow because if we start super slow, it's like a little bit comforting. It's like, Oh, I can do this. Right. We stay in and I think there's value. Zone. I think there's value in that too, like building a good mental association. Like I've had so many reps where I can do it. Of course, once you get to tempo, like if you haven't practiced it properly, you're not going to be able to do it. And then you're not going to believe in your process. So there's a, a danger in there. But I think there is some value in like a little bit of comfort at the beginning. So you build up this tolerance to like, ah, I can do this. Like this is a real thing that I can do. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, you want to ease into it. So you kind of, you want to ease yourself into the challenge, right? So that then if we start off with too much challenge and we're super uncomfortable, then it can be hard to dial it back so you can get into flow. If you start from a little bit of easiness, it's kind of like, um, you know, I've heard of skiers doing this where, you know, they, they, try to first run of the season, right? They'll try to get on like a really gnarly hill and then they, they can't get into flow. But if they go run something easier a couple times, get themselves into the zone, then they can get into flow and do mm -hmm. the hard stuff. So that's why warm-ups are important. Starting slow and comfortable is important. Um, and really the, the point of kind of dialing your way back into that flow tempo is not so much that like we're going to practice fast and ingrain bad habits. It's like, okay, where do I think I probably am? It's just like an exploratory rep. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, yeah. how is it here? Oh, no, that's not it. Slower. Oh, still not it. Slower. Still not it. Oh, there it is. And if I find that something's just like way too fast, I'm like, well, let me bump this down like a big notch. Like, let me go down sure. 12 and see how that feels. And then, you know, then you slowly dial it in. Um, you know, it's kind of like I, 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 one of my hobbies is espresso. And so <laughs> <laughs> dialing in uh, how you have to grind your coffee to get it to like make a good shot of espresso in the right amount of time and everything. It's not a different it's not a totally dissimilar process from finding the right, right tempo. Um, if you if you're not willing to kind of just observe and make small incremental changes and then see when you get to the right spot, you're going to end up overshooting and undershooting and just getting super frustrated. Yeah, I this may be oversimplified, but when I work with people, I, I try to explain it as deep practice or effective or efficient practice ideally would be ingraining exactly what we want every single time. Now, if you're not going to do that, the only other option is you learned something that will help you do that on the very next repetition so that there's nothing wasted. Like you play something and you go, what, what was the point of that? Right. You want to have a plan already in place, a model already in place of what you're trying to do. And then hopefully you've picked the right tempo right from the beginning and you don't have any issues and you just play it perfectly. That would be the most ideal world. But if not, like you said, you do an exploratory rep and you say, okay, what I learned was that's a little too fast 
podcast because of this reason. I'm going to dial it back and really focus in and see if that thing gets fixed at this new tempo. And that helps you get to that place of ingraining faster, I think. This is probably what you're describing. Then you just waste less time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's kind of how we want to approach the struggle phase is as an exploration of, okay, so where am I right now? What am I struggling with? What do I need to do to get myself to the right tempo or the right focus um, as quickly as possible rather than uh, like getting upset or getting frustrated that it was too fast or getting frustrated that we started too slow. It's like, no, okay, I'm probably not going to nail the perfect tempo to practice at today the first time. If I do, then that's awesome. But if I don't, it's not a problem. I just, like you said, I observed that that wasn't quite right because of this reason. And then I say, well, does it need to be slower? Does it need to be faster? How do I need to like bring this into the right balance? And then we get through the struggle as quickly as possible. And the big takeaway that I have is that you can't totally eliminate it because a little bit of it is required because it is that first part of the flow state. So we're always gonna have something be a little bit like, oh, that's not quite right, right? But the, yeah. the, the key is to really just say, oh, okay, but what can I change? And to kind yeah, of engage like it with curiosity and then just move into whatever your adjustment is, then you'll get out of it much quicker. Yeah, it seems like calling it the struggle phase sort of implies that it would be this really hard, arduous, difficult journey. But the way you're describing it here sounds like you're calling it the struggle phase because that's the name of it. But it doesn't necessarily have to be like an existential crisis in this space. You're just saying, I haven't quite got it yet. Right, exactly. And, and you know, I think that it's called the struggle phase. And I'm using that terminology because that is the terminology of like the, the flow research that's out there. Everyone calls it the struggle phase. But, you know, struggle doesn't have to be suffering, right? All that means is that we're kind of grappling with a problem, which essentially is what practice is. It's like, okay, what's what's the puzzle that I need to solve right now? And that's all struggle is. Just the same as I said earlier in our conversation back at the beginning that frustration is part of the struggle phase. Frustration, we wanna discern between two kinds of frustration. There's the frustration that comes from just your mind being a little bit overloaded, which is what we want to have happen so that we get into flow. And the frustration that comes from feeling that feeling and then heaping judgment upon it. Like, oh, I shouldn't, yeah. this is getting in my way. What can I do this? I'm so, right? Yeah. Then it becomes a real struggle and it becomes difficult and it's, it doesn't have to be that way. So I think it's an interesting thing to point out for me to point out that just because it's called the struggle phase, if you quote, do it right. It's not really the same kind of connotation of what we think struggle is, but rather maybe like you said, an observation phase or an exploratory phase, just trying to dial things in. And then you transition, like you said, into, all right, now I've got this. Now the real focused work begins in a space where I can really take advantage of it. Yeah, ab absolutely. So when it is the struggle phase, when we when we really feel like it's a struggle, that's when we're stuck in it. So, hmm. you know, we feel like we're stuck, we're really struggling with something, and then uh, 
we, that's when we start to live our lives and struggle, and it feels like a struggle. But when we view it as, this is really just a, an issue of reframing it, as just a dialing in phase, which is all it is. Okay, the struggle phase is just the phase before flow, the phase where I'm getting everything lined up. So right. that I have that clear goal, I know what I'm doing, I know how I'm doing, how what I need to change, and I'm in the right skill challenge balance. That's all the struggle phase needs to be, is getting those three things in place. And there's gonna be a little bit of adjustment that needs to happen. Now, whether we make that into a struggle with a capital S <laughs> is totally up to us. Right. <laughs> okay, I've noticed the time. I, I've really enjoyed having this conversation. And I think we could, it sounds like you and I could talk about this for like hours on end because it's just such, for me, and it sounds like for you, a very fascinating topic. I think we should end this interview with maybe a bit of a um, unusual question, which would be, in your experience, is there anybody who has not benefited from the trying to find flow state? Does that make sense? Like, is there anybody that's like, you know what, flow state's not a real thing. I got my own other way of doing things over here. Or is it like literally everybody is going to benefit from uh, trying to figure out how to be in flow state? Well, I think that... I think everyone's going to benefit from it because it it's really just a basic part of the human experience, right? And I think that a lot of times when I've had students who like resist the resist the word or resist the idea because they think it's something that they can't do or something that's not for them, but if you you can kind of let them let go of the idea of we're going to call it flow, but when you ask them, well, what are you doing that works for you? They're basically hacking flow hmm. under a different name, right? And so we can call it lots of things and we can have lots of different approaches to it, but I think that fundamentally, you know, we all have the same physiology, we all have the same human brain, and we are going to have different you know, aptitudes about things, right? And there's definitely difference, but we have much more in common than than we have that, that greatly differentiate us just as biological creatures. And so it's such a common part of the human experience that, you know, I don't think anybody will not benefit from it. I think that as long as you're open to figuring out what works for you, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call optimizing for you, you're going to get a lot out of it and probably flow is going to play into it somehow. Yeah. So I love that. That's, I, I wasn't thinking about this, but I just love that, that it's, it, we're just looking for that feeling. We're looking for what it is. Like these words are words to describe it and they're uh, sort of insufficient. And if it's the words that you identify with, great. If not, we're just looking for that feeling because it, it leads to more efficient and effective practice. And that's all we really care about in the end. Well, thank you so much for this. This is incredible. Uh, more time than I was anticipating getting from you. So I really appreciate that. Um, I'm sure my audience appreciates it. If they have more questions about flow and they want to get in contact with you, are there ways that they can do that? Absolutely. So if you have any you know, questions, if anyone wants to ask me anything directly, um, you can just go to... Uh, my website. I have two websites. Um, you can find me at lynnheilman.com, which is kind of my bassoon-focused website. Um, or if you want to know more specifically about flow and about the, the training program, I actually have a one-on-one -on -one training program. I, I teach it 
in groups and one-on-one -on -one at West Virginia University, but I also teach one-on-one -on -one with people outside of the university if you want to find out about that. And, you know, I'm happy to talk with anybody about kind of where you're at right now and what you might want to do and how you can get more flow. You can go to my flow-based website, which is um, thepossiblemusician.com. Awesome. Uh, if you, I would highly recommend people do that. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I think that uh, people like Lynn are dedicating a lot of their lives to helping ev other people find more uh, sort of, I would say, more authority in their own practice, being able to take control of your practice and feel like you're getting a lot done. And I think that for longevity and what we do, this is among the most important things we can be focusing on. I personally think that. So if you have questions, uh, I'm sure she would love for you to reach out at those places that she said. If you need to get in touch with me, most of you know where to do that. That's not spit.com uh, at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it. If you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes, that would help me out. And also if you would share this on social media, that would be really cool too. I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.